last week in our Revelation series, we, say, we saw the opening of the seventh seal of the scroll that was given to Christ as our reigning mediator. You remember there was great solemnity in heaven because it meant that further judgments were about to be brought upon Israel and Rome. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is very striking because just before that, heaven had been filled with lots of noise, with great praises to God because of what he had done in sealing his people so that they could not be destroyed by the judgments that were going to come. And so there was, there was great rejoicing about that, but now there was silence as it was time for those judgments to be, be unleashed. And though they weren't going to uh, destroy the church, it didn't mean that the church would be untouched by them. And neither did it mean that uh, those who were outside of the church, would, they would have terrible judgments falling on them. We saw that things move forward with these judgments when Christ came forward as our great high priest. And he took a censer and offered incense um, along with the prayers of the saints before the golden altar in heaven, which of course is a symbolic altar. There's not a literal altar like that in heaven, but we're told about that. The altar that was on earth before represented Christ going before God with his sacrifice and, and, and so on. So he offered them these prayers and his own incense, his, his own intercession, which is symbolized by the incense. He offered them and then he took coals from the altar. Remember that? Uh, what are coals for on the altar? They, they consume the sacrifice. God's wrath. They represent the heat of God's wrath upon, upon Christ, his, his Son that died for our sins. And now he takes those same, that same wrath, those same coals, and dumps it out on the earth on those who had rejected Christ. They weren't covered by his atonement, and so now they have to bear the wrath of God because they rejected Christ as the Savior and Redeemer. They who rejected would have to bear the wrath that, that he bore when he was on the cross for their own sins. There was a display of such as there was in, at Sinai when God's people gave Israel the law before he had given them the, um, the, the temple with showing the, the, the mediation and the way of forgiveness and all of that. There were lightnings and thunderings and shaking of the earth, just like there was at Sinai. 1,600 years prior, God quickly revealed the way of forgiveness by the shedding of blood through the temple. But this time that doesn't happen. He did that to comfort the people. But these, who, these are the ones here when this judgment is poured out that had rejected Christ. He'd been revealed to them. They said, we don't want God's way of redemption. We want him to be crucified. We want nothing to do with him. They had refused Christ as their comfort, their their temple would be destroyed because the temple was a mockery. It had represented him all of those years, and now he had come and they had rejected him. So that it was time for the temple to be destroyed. We saw that immediately the seven angels stepped forth, and probably where it calls them the seven, we said this is perhaps the, refers to the archangels that are mentioned in some of the uh, Jewish writings. And uh, they had horns or, or trumpets. And those trumpets are used to announce war and judgment as God was declaring war upon, Christ was declaring war upon those who had rejected him. 
we consider the tremendous power of prayer when it is joined to Christ's intercession. It was represented by the incense again. The saints pray for God's kingdom to come. That's the prayer that we pray regularly, that evil would be put down. And, uh, and, and that means that God's wrath must be poured out on those who reject Christ without repentance. All who refuse to kiss the Son, to use the language of Psalm 2, will meet with judgment. We notice that there is no power so great and so inviolable as the prayers of God's people under Christ our head. We may think that nothing is happening when we pray, your kingdom come. Those are the most powerful words ever, you know, that in terms of there's nothing on earth that is so powerful as your kingdom come when God unleashes his wrath upon the, the earth at various times in history, in various ways. We're looking at a time that's described here, you see, in this in Revelation. And again, I've said to you before, I'm presenting it as in the first century. I believe that's when it's talking about, but if it was later, it doesn't even matter. This is how God works. It's how he always works. He'll do this at the end. He does that along the way. When he judges nations, people pray, your kingdom come. They, they continue. Maybe people are persecuted in a nation. They're being um, mistreated because of following Christ and they're witnessed to and they're called to repentance and they are exposed to the gospel and they continue to do that, then his judgment is going to fall on them and answer Christ's intercession and the prayers of the saints will bring about God's wrath and judgment upon them. So it's a very powerful thing. We shall see today that there is much that happens not only at the uh, final judgment but in the providence of God through history. Today we'll look at our, the first four trumpets, which all refer to extraordinary natural disasters that King Jesus sent to judge both Israel and Rome. If we're talking about, if it is true that it was written regarding the first century, it was written a little bit after that. Some of the historicists would say these are things that happened bringing judgment upon the earth, which did happen in later periods of um, the Muslims and different ones along the way uh, through history. Another one say this is something that's yet future. Well, it is that too. Um, but I think it was written about the time of the first century. So let's go to our scripture reading. It's Revelation 8, 7 through 13. I'll give attention to the reading of God's word. Revelation 8, beginning in verse 7, where we left off last time. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. So here we see Jesus the Lord over nature 
uses nature for his purposes. First of all, I'll show you that these four trumpets seem, and I use that word deliberately, seem to describe natural disasters that took place in AD 66, particularly. Second, we will see how these disasters themselves represented other things. And of course, they will represent other things all through history. Third, we will consider how we ought to respond to natural disasters. So before I begin, I want to let you know that I relied heavily on the extensive and documented research that Dr. Philip Kayser, a Reformed Presbyterian minister at Dominion Covenant Church in Omaha, Nebraska, has done. I felt like I should mention that because I am not um, I haven't done all these historical studies myself, and I read different authors, and he was one that had compiled a lot of information with footnotes and everything. So I thought I would just mention that before I go forward. I want to give credit where credit is due. I didn't have time to, um, to dig into all these resources um, on my own study. So um, I appreciated the, the work that, that he had done. But uh, if you want to see an in-depth treatment and com- complete with references and photos, um, you can see that on uh, biblicalblueprints.com uh, that he has a uh, website. Okay, well, let's get started. So the first four trumpets seem to describe natural disasters that happened in AD 66 in the land of Israel. Let's look at each trumpet. And I don't, again, I'd say these things seem to happen. What we learn here is this is the kind of thing that God does at different times of history. And we can see that there's some extraordinary things that he does all through history. So the first trumpet, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Now to what does this refer? Well, it could be referring symbolically to the siege of Jerusalem. And uh, last week I was kind of inclined that way uh, earlier in the week. Uh, I mean, the week before, really. But uh, the siege that occurred at 70 AD could refer to that, where the hailstones would be representing the, the Roman catapults that were the, the stones that were flung over the walls and the, the fire, um, fiery arrows that they shot, fire coming down on the people. And, of course, the blood that's mingled with all of that as people are, are wounded and, and, and damaged. But there are other references to the siege that come later. I think the siege comes later and as these trumpets are laid out, that it's a later event that's described much more fully and completely later on. So um, many preterists, people who see it an early date for Revelation, take this event to correspond with the 12th legion that was led by Cestius, who came to Jerusalem September 8th, AD 66, with 35,000 soldiers. Of course, this is well documented that he came invading Israel at that time as the Romans were very angry with Israel. They had rebelled at Masada and they had also uh, taken over that fortress and they had rebelled at Jerusalem and they had locked up some of the, um, the Romans that were in, the, in the, uh, the temple, guarding the temple and stuff. And they had uh, then promised them that they would let them go if they laid down their arms and came out. As soon as they laid down their arms and came out, they just slaughtered them. The Romans were very, very angry. And so they had sent this uh, force with 35,000 soldiers that devastated the land as they came through 
Galilee and that region. He came through that area. Herod Agrippa was in that area as well, was an ally, of course, of the Romans. And uh, the cities of Israel uh, were, were destroyed. And this went on. He came in, I give that date, because the time he came was very interesting. It was at the Feast of Trumpets. It's interesting that we have trumpets and, you know, there's trumpets. It's hard to know whether there's any correlation. I mean, they had trumpets at the beginning of every month and everything in Israel, so you could always find trumpets if you want to. And, of course, that's one of the things people can do with this kind of thing. But, but it is at this time when, uh, when he came through and uh, they were at the feast. And so he didn't have a lot of resistance because most of the Jews were at the feast in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he burned and pillaged as he went through. And he shed much blood. And so a lot, of, a lot of people think that that's what this is talking about. But there is an extraordinary natural phenomena that also occurred at this time. The Roman historian Cassius Dio documents that at Albanum, it rained so much blood that rivers of it flowed over the land. Now, this is a curious thing to me that I looked into, and I did look at various sources on this. I did not know about this. But there are many reported cases of blood rain in history, which were often dismissed by modern scientists as just kind of, you know, exaggerations, fictional things or whatever, until 2001, when two whole districts of the Kerala province of India had blood rain. And it was, it's, you know, you can, go, you can look at pictures. There's pictures of it on the Internet that you can see. The uh, Pakistan weather portal reported you're standing outside in rain. They're just describing a person, you know, so you're standing outside in rain, enjoying the cool breeze and the smell of the rain. Suddenly you notice that your clothes are turning red. The pond of rainwater is turning red. The walls of houses are red. And when you look up at the sky, red rain is falling on you, thick as blood. Now, Dr. Kayser says that, quote, since that time, scientists have studied similar phenomenon in another location in India, in Sri Lanka, in Kazakhstan, England, Spain, Switzerland, as well as large bodies of water becoming suddenly red in England, Netherlands, France, Russia, Australia, Ukraine, Lebanon, and other countries. Scientists have studied it, and it has not always been from the same cause. They have trouble figuring out what it is in many occasions. They said maybe it was asteroid dust, but then it went on too long. They said maybe, you know, they have all kinds of different theories. It's very difficult. It was normally understood by the church as it has happened through history. And there were, they already had, you know, some 400 cases that were on record that were kind of dismissed from before these more modern ones. And uh, they, the church always looked at it as something that was sort of a warning signifying evil to come, and the pagans looked at it in the same way. And of course, it's not that hard. This is, again, where you can do a lot of stuff with history because there's so much trouble that happens. You can always say, oh, look, the, this guy died right after that. You know, the leader died right after that, or whatever. You can al- there's always stuff that happens. And so those things in history, we have to be careful not to, not to jump onto them. But there is some indication that, like, the Black Death was one that was, had blood rains just before that. Th- things like that that are... Um, give some credence to those things, and the ancient people aren't always as, as foolish and stupid as we might think that they were. In fact, they're a lot of times a lot smarter than, than we are. But uh, that was, uh, it, it's a curious thing. There was also an extraordinary 
number of hailstones and fires, hailstorms and fires that were documented at this time in the first century in Israel. And there were, um, you know, there, there were some of these things going on. So that, that's the first trumpet. And it, it signifies God's displeasure. And we're, we're going to talk about what it signifies more later, so I won't do that now. But the, the second trumpet, verse 8 and 9, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. There's documentation of a couple of asteroids in AD 66 in this area, and that is a plausible explanation for what happened here. Josephus describes a large one that was seen falling into where kind of toward the Mediterranean. Of course, you can't see where it falls when you're just there on the land, but he, it went over in, in that direction. But it does not seem feasible in my mind that, that this would be no, that there would be no more mention of that because it, it, if, it, if it was talking about this event, it would cause, it caused considerable damage in our. But uh, John is seeing visions of things that represent other things. So even if they don't have a literal fulfillment, they represent other things like governments falling and, and things like that. Again, we'll get to what they represent in a minute. However, that such damage could happen from an asteroid is documented by the Roman historian Aminaeus um, Marcellinus in, uh, regarding an asteroid in AD 365. He describes tremendous thunder, which was like a, a sonic boom as the thing came through, followed by a crash. And again, you can't see, couldn't see where it landed. He, see, the thing came by, there was, he, he didn't even see it, it seems like, but he said there was a huge crash that caused the sea to disappear, leaving sea creatures and ships on the floor of the sea. So like when you have a hurricane and the wind blows the, the water back and there, it's, the land, it just sweeps the, the sea out and it's, it's gone. And then what happens after that? You get a tsunami because it comes back. You know when there's a hurricane, they always say don't go out on the empty bed because the water's going to come back. And it's going to be devastating when it does. So uh, his words are these, this historian... Many ships then were stranded as if on dry land when the waters withdrew. People wandered at will about the paltry remains of the waters to collect fish and the like in their hands. Then the roaring sea, as if insulted by its repulse, rises back in turn and through the teeming shoals dashed itself violently on the islands and extensive tracts of the mainland and flattened innumerable buildings and towns or wherever they were found. Thus, in the raging conflict of the elements, the face of the earth was changed to reveal wondrous sights. For the mass of waters returning when least expected killed many thousands by drowning, and with the tides whipped up to a height as they rushed back, some, as they rushed back, some ships, after the anger of the watery element had grown old, were seen to have sunk, and the bodies of people killed in shipwrecks lay there, faces up or down. Other huge ships, thrust out by the mad blast, perched on the roofs of houses, as happened at Alexandria. And others were hurled nearly two miles from the shore, 
like the Laoconian vessel near the town of Methon. Now we must remember that Rome was involved in civil wars during this time. Okay, when we not not the 365, but during the time of uh, the first century, there was tremendous civil wars that were going on in Rome, and uh, that nearly brought about their demise. We're, we're going to be talking about that more later, and that that was something that happened in that time when they were, were actually fighting the Jews. They actually withdrew at one point because they were almost completely ruined. Rome was all, they, people thought it was going to fail. It didn't. Came back, but uh, Israel is being overrun by invasions. Um, from Rome also, while uh, the Jews were rebelling, uh, as mentioned in Jerusalem and such. So there may not have been a lot that was maybe something like that did happen in the Mediterranean at this time that was not well documented because, frankly, there's not a lot of records about anything during that time other than the war because there were thousands, tens of thousands of people that were dying in these skirmish, these civil wars, huge civil wars that were going on with Rome. And uh, everything was just in a crazy upheaval. Even Israel had three different factions when the siege occurs in Jerusalem. There were three groups that were actually fighting with each other inside the walls when they were being attacked from outside by the Romans. It was just a really, really desperate time. Again, we're going to be looking at some of that later. But uh, so, so that's the second trumpet. And it, you know, it could refer to that kind of a, a devastation. It would cause that kind of destruction. But whether it has a literal fulfillment or not, we can't even say that for certain, but it's something that is feasible. It seems like these are things that happened in the first century. That one, to me, the second trumpet is one that we have the least information about. But the third trumpet was, has more evidence of a literal fulfillment in that same year, A.D. 66. It's uh, chapter 10, I mean, verse 10, 8, 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now, it is very well known that in AD 66, when Cestius was invading, as I mentioned in, in Galilee, that the waters of the Jordan aquifer were poisoned the aquifer being the underground waters that you get the springs from and all that kind of stuff. And it supplies, interestingly, one-third of the water of Israel, of the land of the, of the people of God. Some blame it on Cestius. They, they wrote about this. I mean, it was, it was well known, as I say. They blamed it on Cestius, but it doesn't make sense that he would have done it when he and his men were affected by it. They're drinking the water, and uh, they, were, they were actually harmed by it. And so it doesn't seem likely that he would be the one that would do this. Also, the Romans were pretty keen on not destroying water supplies and things like that when they came through. It was sort of a policy they had. Um, but, you know, his allies were there as well, like, you know, Herod Agrippa. So some have suggested that he did do it, but it's because he was demon-possessed. So he just went totally out of his mind and poisoned the waters that he and his troops were drinking. Uh, I guess that's a possibility. Uh, Dion Cassius, a historian, uh, blames the Jews for it because he's a Roman historian. So he said, no, no, it's not. It wasn't Cestius. It was the Jews that did this. But again, why would they poison their own water too? Maybe to drive the Romans out. I mean, it's, it's possible. But a better explanation is that it was from a meteorite that poisoned the water. As mentioned, several are noted as falling in the region at this time. 
meteorites or asteroids, mm -hmm. either one. And uh, this is the interesting thing. More recently, in Peru, a meteor was seen to fall in Carancas region on the 15th of September, 2007. Again, you can look this up. Um, that poisoned the waters in the whole region. People and animals got sick and some died because the waters were poisoned. So that's something that maybe that uh, there's, uh, now this Kaiser guy, he, he actually located a place where there is a, a hole on top of a hill where there's a, a lake now that was formed from perhaps this, very similar to what happened in Peru, and it's right on the aquifer that it would have actually polluted all the waters, like it did in Peru. This is something that happens. The whole two regions were, had polluted waters as a result in Peru. That's a possibility. And again, these all happened, these things were AD 66 when uh, Cestius was coming through. The fourth trumpet is described in verse 12. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So a plausible theory for literal fulfillment notes that there are several records about signs in the moon and the stars at this time, the sun and the moon and the stars. For example, the historian Hegesippus says that uh, at this time, AD 66, there were signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. He doesn't tell us what the signs were. <laughs> he just says that they were there. Josephus also mentions multiple signs that were in the heavens at this time. Um, NASA says that Halley's Comet was also, Halley's Comet would have come through at this time. And of course, there were fires and volcanoes and such that were going on, partly because of some of the asteroids and things that had, and there were fault lines there. We, we saw that earlier in Revelation that there were various devastating earthquakes that went on at this time. It was all these things were going on. Uh, Cassius speaks of a comet that, uh, and of two eclipses of the moon at this time, which was not supposed to happen. It was an, there was something going on, and there were a time when there were two suns that looked like they were in the sky at the same time. There, there's all kinds of different things that were, were going on, and these you know, periods of darkness could be from all the volcanoes, um, the ash going up, and those kind of things. We don't know exactly how. There, there, there's no sure thing. But this, and, and I don't want to be speculative here in the sense of saying, that, you know, this is definitely what happened. But what I do want to do is, is say that these are things that are feasible to have a literal fulfillment. I believe, though, that they also represent judgments that are going to fall. They are judgments themselves, and they represent judgments that are going to fall. They, they tell us things of God and His displeasure. And why do I say this? Because this is exactly what happened in Egypt. We read about Egypt, and we see that God had plagues that, that fell upon Egypt to show his displeasure that he was going to bring his people out. He judged their gods, and he showed his displeasure through natural signs and wonders that were done. They were announced beforehand by him. And uh, this is the kind of way that God works in history. When nations don't obey him, he sends a, a, a whole bunch of natural disasters and whether, again, it's this time, another time, I'm not going to be at all dogmatic about that. 
But God works this way. And we need to be mindful of that. I'm going to say more about that later when we get to the application part. But, um, you know, what is the meaning of these particular ones in the first century? Well, the signs were signs of judgment upon Israel and Rome, if we look at the first century. The things, let me put it this way, whether it was these things specifically or things like this happened in the first century, and there were signs of God's displeasure. All of them correspond somewhat to the plagues of Egypt. Now Egypt, and here's an interesting thing. Israel was in Egypt, and God delivered them out of Egypt, bringing judgments and plagues upon Egypt to deliver them. Now Israel is Egypt, and the Christians are being delivered out of Jerusalem and set free from them as God brings judgment upon them who are seeking to slaughter all the Christians. And he brings judgment on the Romans at the same time in a more limited way as is described in this book. So God will not let, he did not let in history, the Jews and the Romans wipe out his people. He, he worked in his judgments when they prayed and cried out to God. He sealed them, his own people, and he delivered them from, these, from the hand of their enemies. So he sent signs from heaven to show Jesus showing that he's bringing these judgments upon those who are persecuting his people. The scripture shows, as we saw last week, the persecuted saints' prayers, reaching God's throne through Christ, the whole church being persecuted, praying, the incense, their prayers came up, Christ's incense mingled with it, offered to God, and then all these judgments start. That picture is so clear that we see how prayer works. The trumpets are the judgments that ensue sent from heaven. Again, whether they're literally fulfilled or not, they were or are in any case symbolic of how God sends plagues on those who reject him and his anointed son. You don't mess with Christ and on those who persecute his people. So what might these first four trumpets show? Well, like the early plagues upon Egypt, all of them show judgment on the land itself. This is especially true of the first trumpet. The land of Israel had a very special significance. All through the Bible, it speaks of God giving this land to these people, and this land to these people, and that land to those people. God promised this land as a unique place for his covenant people in the old covenant. It was a place where he would protect them and where he would provide for them, and most importantly of all, have communion with them as their God and Redeemer, and reveal himself to them as Redeemer. He gave them ordinances of worship representing his forgiveness through the shedding of blood. He met with them there and he sent prophets to them to announce judgments to them or to proclaim uh, blessings that he was going to send. And eventually he sent his only son as all the prophets prophesied. But they now had rejected these. They rejected these prophets along the years and then they rejected his son when he came. And he said that the blood of all those prophets and apostles and of Christ himself would fall on that generation. That's what Jesus proclaimed. He wept over Jerusalem for their hardness of heart. So now he is pronouncing judgment on them from heaven. The land itself cannot bear their idolatry. As God said, if you continue on in Deuteronomy, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For they, they, the land will vomit you out, he said. For they rejected the true God when they rejected his son and worshipped and, and, and worshiped really idols now, 
because it wasn't the true God anymore. The, the true God is the one who has a son named Jesus. And if you reject the son, you're, you're, the God you're worshiping, whoever he is, is an idol and not the true God. So the very heavens and earth that once blessed them are now cursing them. Of course, all along the way, God used the land sometimes to bring famines and different things, droughts to, to judge the people. But now it's in a, a heightened sense. He's bringing these special judgments upon them to show that the land cannot bear them anymore in their wickedness. The second trumpet was the mountain that is cast into the sea. Now, mountains are used repeatedly in the scripture to represent cities. I could give you lots of references. And Jesus had prophesied the overthrow of Jerusalem. And it is often referred to as God's mountain and that sort of thing. Uh, When he cursed the fig tree, which was a symbol of Israel, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, you remember when he cursed the fig tree? You remember what he said to his disciples after that? If you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, then it will obey you. What was he talking about? We looked at that when we were studying Mark. He was talking about Jerusalem because he'd just been there and they were rejecting him and he'd come out and he cursed the fig tree to show that they were going to be cursed. The fig tree represented Israel. And then when the disciples asked him about it, he said, the fig tree withered so quickly. And he said, I say to you, if you say to this mountain, he's right there at Jerusalem, just been rejected. He says, then uh, it will be cast into the sea. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a symbol of that judgment that is going to be overthrown. That's the, that's the picture of the mountain and the sea. Mountains are often used in, in, in this purpose. Uh, it was uh, cursed because of the Jews rejecting Christ. So in Revelation, Rome is frequently represented by the sea. So casting a mountain into the sea, third of the creatures and the third of the ships may represent even at this very time the destruction that came both to Israel and Rome. Because with the seals, you remember when we looked at the seals, it was a fourth that was destroyed, but now it's gone up to a third. So the judgments are getting more severe. They're getting more and more severe. And it's interesting that um, that's about the number of the, the 35,000 that, that Cestius brought in that, that perished. There were, there were about you know, 12,000 or so, about a third that perished. The third trumpet speaks of the star Wormwood that poisoned the waters. Wormwood is always in Scripture, like six times or so that it's used outside of this time, a symbol of judgment, particularly on apostasy, on people who ought to worship God, who profess the the true God, and who apostatize and and turn from Him. It is mentioned uh, six times outside this passage and always is a symbol of judgment on apostasy, someone within the visible church rejecting God. The priests had done that. Stars in Scripture point to religious leaders, especially religious leaders. They're light, and they they are to shine. And uh, we saw that in the beginning of Revelation. The seven stars were the seven messengers to the churches and uh, pastors of the churches or whatever. Jesus is called the bright and morning star himself. The high priest had been symbolized by the star for at least a hundred years. And it was a very, very common symbol at this time in Israel. So this likely refers to the wicked house of Ananus who fell from office at this same period, this same time period. 
his grandson Matthias was the last Sadducee to hold office. And they'd had a, like a, a real iron grip on that office. They were wickedly powerful and nobody thought that they could be removed. But who can stand before the Lord? Jesus told them that they would see his judgment. He told the high priest in particular that judgment was going to fall on him. The fourth trumpet with the disturbance in the sun, moon, and stars perhaps speaks of Rome, which did have about, as I mentioned, a third of the 12th legion killed at this time. Also had losses at this time in Jerusalem and in Masada, where the Jews had taken over things, as I mentioned before. So this was a great humiliation to Rome and it infuriated them and, and stirred them up to do even more destruction that's going to come later to the land. Uh, and I say the sun and the moon for, for them because they are often represented that way as the leading, the, you know, the leaders are often the sun and the moon, that sort of thing. We've talked about that before. It's used some symbol used for history, sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, you know, that sort of a thing that we have repeatedly in Scripture. Now, how ought we to respond to what we have here, what we see here in the Scripture? First, we should be reminded that Jesus is Lord of all nature. Whether there was a literal fulfillment in nature or not, and whether these prophecies are even of this time or not, we're reminded by these signs that he is Lord of all. We know that in the plagues of Israel, there were literal fulfillments of all the things, the darkness and the blood and all of those things. And that God himself said that the purpose was to show that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh. Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, was given all authority in heaven and earth. And so these demonstrate, the judgments that fall upon the earth, demonstrate Jesus Christ is Lord. When we see natural disasters, we must attribute them to God. We should not accept the prevailing modern view of the world that such things just happen. Things don't just happen. The Lord of all is the one who sovereignly orchestrates all of these things. No, we should see the hand of God. And when we see that there are many increasing signs like this, many increasing judgments, we should recognize that it is a signal of God's displeasure and perhaps that he is going to overthrow that society. What happens all the time today is people will come and say, oh, look, these things are happening. It's going to be the end of the world. Well, no, it's probably the end of that particular society, that particular, that particular country, that particular region, whatever it is. It's often that. We don't know. We don't know of, of the, those things. But uh, what we should do when we see natural disasters of any kind, this is what people used to do. Governments would call a day of prayer and fasting because God has visited us and they would cry out to him. And now we say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with God. It's just uh, there was this meteorological thing that happened and that's what caused all this. And you can get all kinds of explanations for it. But God is over the meteorology. He's over the whole. He's over all of the things that happen. He just if he uses, he often uses things that are very, uh, have explanations that we can, we can lay out like that. But he's the one who brings it about or removes it at his pleasure. So uh, 
this has huge implications for us. You know, we, we ought to fear God. There's nothing that we can do with the one to stop the one who has in his arsenal <laughs> meteors and asteroids. He can hurl them wherever he wishes. He can bring winds. He can bring storms. He can do he, floods. He can cause the earth to open up and suck people in. He can do whatever he wants. And we need to fear God and recognize that he is the God with whom we have to do. He can wipe out 12,000 of Rome's tw 12th legion. He can cause blood to rain out of the sky and our waters to turn to blood. If we are wise, then we will bow to him as Lord. We will bow to him not only because he has all power to crush us, but also because he is worthy of all praise and because he receives those who come to him in Jesus' name. It is nothing but wickedness and an evil heart that keeps us from worshiping the true God. He will see that our sin is judged like those wicked and idolatrous priests and those proud Romans. When we see nature seeming to turn on us, we must see that it is the God of nature who is visiting us. The solution is not in all the government's failed policies to fix these things. They can't fix these things. It's in repenting and turning to the Lord. I don't mean that we shouldn't be responsible if we're doing something harmful in nature. But I do mean that we can't expect little man to be able to fix these things. And note well, it is Jesus to whom we bow as Lord. We are seeing again, who is it? that we saw in John's vision up in heaven that was unleashing these things. It is the Lamb that was slain. He is the one who has now got the scroll in his hand and is carrying out God's purpose and plan on his adversaries. Now we come to the last verse in our text, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now you know that in, the, in Hebrew that uh, if they want to emphasize something, it's repeated. You know, like if something is good, we would say, it's, if it's really good, we would say it's very good. They would say it's good, good. That's the way the language works. A lot of languages are like that. And if it's really, really good, then they say good, good, good. And uh, so in this case, when it says, whoa, 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 that's a very, very strong statement. They don't use it all the time either. They use it very sparingly. There's very few times that you have three repeated, holy, holy, holy. And here, whoa, whoa, whoa. In other words, there's some terrible things that are coming. The majority text says that this was an eagle rather than an angel. Uh, you can see that in your New King James margin. The M there refers to the, um, the, the majority text. And the critical text is mentioned there too that has it. So it's probably an eagle uh, here. The, the terrible reality is that far worse things are coming upon those who have rejected God than have already happened with these first four trumpets. Worse things are about to happen. This is how God operates. He sends judgments to wake us up, to get our attention that we might repent. If we do not, then he issues worse things. He assures us that worse things will come, and they will. Jesus will have no rivals. 
We are worshiping the state today. We're looking to government for everything, to deliver us from everything. What is the government going to do is our first question. Not, we need to repent and be reconciled to God and call on His name. We need rather to turn back to the Lord that He might reign over us. That is what is needed. If our people will not acknowledge Him, it is still our duty as Christians to do so. We call them to, we urge them to, and we don't just ask them to do nice things, like don't kill babies and things like that. They need to submit to the living God as Lord. We don't want them to kill babies, of course. But if we say, oh, we got a victory because they don't kill babies anymore, if we, if we were successful in that, we have done nothing if they're not worshiping the true and living God. We're still an idolatrous people that are under His wrath and curse, and things will only go wrong. In fact, many of those things that we do, like killing babies, our actual judgments themselves or our sexual immorality. God turns us over, as it says in Romans, to our own ways because we would not acknowledge Him and worship Him. That's where we have to go back to. That's where it has to start. We must confess Him and obey Him, even if it puts us at loggerheads with our magistrate. We must pray for mercy and repentance for our people and how we ought to give thanks to Him for His mercy to us. Just to think that our Lord Jesus Christ came here for people who were given over to idolatry and all kinds of sin. He came here in order to redeem us. And he went to the cross and he bore our sins. And he calls all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from their own way and to come to him and to follow him. And he promises a blessing and eternal life forever and ever in his father's house if we will come to him. But if not... If we refuse even that, an opportunity to repent and to come back to Him, what can we expect but devastating judgment, the wrath of God poured out in a fury and a, unleashed upon us as happened to His people that He bore with so long in Israel. The remnant was saved and there's people, they're still there. And it's, there's indication in Scripture that God may yet visit Israel again and re restore uh, them as, as a people and restore other nations as well and bring the whole world to bow before him. We look for him to do that. We don't know for sure, but it, scripture indicates that we can expect him perhaps to do that. As I've said to you before, I'm hesitant because we don't do well with future prophecies. We never have, but uh, we, we trust God that he's going to fulfill the things that he has said in his word. All right, please stand and let's call on his name. Oh, Lord, our God, you are so gracious and faithful for how is it that when people like us have sinned against you and have provoked you to wrath again and again and again, that you should come to us with offers of mercy, even that in, these, in the way that you bring your judgments, it's a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and all the while that they might have repented. And we know at the end of chapter 9, it says that even after all of this, they still did not repent. And Father, this is the most wicked thing of all, to have all of these things to mercifully get our attention, to turn us back to you, and to ignore them, and to go on headlong to destruction in our rebellion and our, our defiance of, of the living God. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, and that you would have mercy on us. We are a very wicked people. Our land has spurned you, O Lord. And we see that the church has not been far behind. We see that even today that 
almost probably the great majority view in the church is that you have nothing to do when there is an earthquake or when there is a flood or when there is a storm. That you, are, you, don't, you don't have anything to do with it at all except that you come maybe to comfort people after it's over and to try to help us build things, put things back together again. Father, we pray that you would change our ways as your people and that we would proclaim boldly that these things are from the hand of the Almighty, that they are actually from the hand of Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain for our sins before the foundation of the world and that came in the fullness of time to carry out that work that was decreed. We thank you that he will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. We praise you, O Lord, that your scripture tells us to kiss the Son, lest he be angry with us. And we pray, Lord, that nations and kings would come and bow down to him and that they would call upon his name and serve him. We pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness to proclaim the truth, that we would not hesitate or be afraid. For Lord King Jesus is Lord of Lords, and he reigns over all. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We praise you that there is none like him. He is exalted over all. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you and we honor you, and we thank you so much for your gracious and tender mercy toward us, that you would receive sinners like us and that we can come to you and be reconciled to you and be on the path to righteousness and holiness. Oh, Father, how we long to, to come and, and come into your courts and to praise you forever and ever. We thank you that your kingdom will be established in all of its fullness and completeness, that we will have the holiness and the fruit of righteousness and peace that we talked about this morning. Lord, thank you and set us on that way, Lord. Set us on that trajectory for you are gracious. We do not wish to go in the other trajectory that leads to destruction. We praise you, O Lord, and we honor you as our Lord and our King. It is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Receive the blessing of God, people of God. And the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.